Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode number 59 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome again, Moira. Hello, Dave. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. We, we were sort of waiting for the pandemic to ease, it all to just go away, life to get back to normal. Yet yes. here we are. We thought we, <laughs> I think we thought we'd got through something and then think, uh-oh, it's probably worse than ever this year. Yeah, and yeah. it's, you know, we're both healthcare workers and providing healthcare and it's been pretty tough for healthcare workers and both trying to maintain a service for people and people are pretty distressed in the community as well. Yeah, a great, yeah, extraordinary amount of distress, extraordinary amount of sleep disturbance and extraordinary amount of people expressing suicidal ideation as well as sometimes not so much suicidal but just just sort of thinking I just don't know what I haven't got much hope in life I don't know what's worth living for at the moment all those sorts of things which has prompted us to to do the topic that we're doing today which I'll get you to introduce. So we are going to talk about suicide and its interaction with sleep there's a number of people have done a lot of research in this area but we wanted to talk to Professor Ian Hickey because he's published a lot on the relationship between sleep, mood, distress, and the natural consequence of that being suicide. Ian's the co-director of the Health and Policy Unit at the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre. So thanks a lot for helping us out with the podcast, Ian. Pleasure. And how big a problem is suicide in Australia? Suicide's the leading cause of death in young people in Australia, between 25 and 44, leading cause of death in people under 25. Over 3,300 people in Australia lose their lives to suicide every year. 65,000 people attempt suicide every year. You know, it is the biggest cause of productive years of life lost. So when you talk about, you know, because basically you're talking about younger people, so 115,000 productive years of life lost every year. Now, cardiovascular disease, which comes number second, comes long second at about 78,000. And the various cancers come after that down in the 50,000. So I don't think most people are aware the extent to which we're talking about loss of life, loss of productive life due to a health problem, that suicide is streets ahead, very sadly, of those other common and, and frequently very well-treated health conditions. So you focused on young people. What about other subgroups where you might see suicides a bit overrepresented? So you see suicide overrepresented in middle-aged men. You see it in certain groups. You certainly see it in our Indigenous populations. And there are groups in older people, particularly older men, who are on their own where suicide rates go up. Now, the so-called comorbidities come into play here. So when people have other medical conditions like chronic pain and other difficulties, certainly drug and alcohol and related other problems, and certainly when the situation is complicated by other social factors, so social isolation, loss of jobs, loss of relationships, marital breakdown, other factors combine uh, to put people at considerable risk. Ian, it's been great to get you on to speak with us today because you've been a, a real flag flyer for the link with depression and sleep. Um, and we'd like to talk further about just what are the links between, say, suicide and sleep? And do, do we actually know yet? Well, we certainly know about the relationships between various types of depression and the certain types of depression have various different types of sleep and sleep-wake cycle disturbance. So I often talk about sleep-wake cycles rather than just sleep. Sometimes I think when people just talk about sleep, they think it only about the eight hours a day, but actually it's the 24-hour sleep-wake cycle that most fascinates me in terms of the different types. And I say that because of different types of sleep disturbance. 
and their association with different types of neuropsychiatric disorders and then with their consequences like suicide are very interesting. Although you can look in epidemiological studies directly at certain kinds of sleep disturbance and suicidal behaviour uh, and try and unpick the particular relationship. So I think one of the problems we've had in psychiatry is to assume that sleep is just sort of an epiphenomena or a secondary phenomena. You have to be depressed first or you have to have some other major problem first and sleep's just, of course, one of those physiological things that goes wrong. The work I'm associated with goes the other way around. There are certain kinds of sleep-wake cycle disturbances which are fundamental. In fact, we would argue, for example, in bipolar disorder, previously known as manic depressive illness, that circadian disturbance is actually the fundamental biological mechanism, that the clock goes off, goes off in winter and spring. It goes off and leads to people not being able to sleep at all when they're manic or being totally oversleeping, becoming hibernating bears in winter when they're depressed. And it's really an energy sleep-wake cycle disturbance. And the mood is actually the secondary phenomenon. And this is, of course, heresy amongst my psychiatric colleagues, but basically treating that. And in fact, the world's most effective treatment discovered in Melbourne, of all places, lithium, in fact, moderates the regularity of the clock. A number of our antidepressants, unfortunately, sometimes go the wrong way in making people more light-sensitive and disturbing their clock. So I think in some areas we argue not only is it important, it probably is the causal mechanism for the other phenomena that we see. And I raise the issue of bipolar disorder in particular because it has a very high rate, sadly, of suicide. And it's very hard to treat also with conventional antidepressants. So it doesn't do well with conventional antidepressants. In other areas of the sleep-wake cycle, uh, many of our selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the Prozac-like drugs, actually make some people more light-sensitive. Again, discoveries made in Melbourne by Sean Kane and his colleagues about light sensitivity and that, that may make people more likely to become unstable. And so some of the side effects of some of our common antidepressants might be due to their effect on the sleep-wake cycle. Some of the SSRIs, again, disturb people's sleep. However, on the other side of the coin, there are certain kinds of anxious kinds of sleep problems. So people who can't fall asleep, initial insomnia, ruminating thoughts, very anxious, where things like SSRIs are actually really good treatments and eventually help people to sleep by reducing their anxiety and rumination and, and uh, effects on initial insomnia. So initial insomnia tends to run with anxiety. The great majority of depressions are anxious depressions. Anxious kids become anxious, depressed teenagers, become depressed substance abusing adults. That's the you know, lifetime change in the phenotype, but same underlying problem of anxiety type factors. And that's all often associated with initial insomnia, broken sleep, daytime fatigue and other sets of uh, problems. Of course, on the suicide bit, in classical, very severe depression in middle age and older people, early morning wakening where the circadian clock has shifted actually in an opposite direction to teenagers. So in teenagers, we see delayed sleep type factors, kids who won't go to sleep and won't get up. And we see in young people with depression, very severe phase shifts in those directions. Kids who become basically nocturnal, they're not awake during the day and expose themselves to light. You know, older people, we see the reverse. They're waking up at three in the morning, very agitated and very unwell and are highly likely to attempt suicide in those early hours of the morning. And many of the tragedies that we see where someone has killed themselves at five in the morning out of a very disturbed sleep-wake cycle. Other epidemiological work in the United States, that work of Kathleen Merrick Angus and my colleagues there, where teenagers get dragged out of bed at ungodly hours, five and six a.m. to bus to school, to start school early, uh, really disrupts their adolescent sleep where you normally should sleep later. And that's associated with mood disturbance and probably with suicidal behaviour too. So it's in recent times, there's been much greater interest amongst my epidemiological colleagues, but also my clinical colleagues in, hang on a second, this sleep stuff is not just a secondary epiphenomena. It's something that at a public health level, 
and also at a clinical level, we should put much, much more emphasis on. What do you think about distress as another mediator of that relationship between sleep and suicide? So I think one of the great things at the moment, and I think uh, for those of us who are being affected by the COVID situation at the moment and losing our daytime routines and are generally distressed by loss of social connection and the situation we're living in, is if you're distressed, you don't sleep. If you don't sleep, you stay distressed. Now, the great sleepers in the world have that marvellous phenomena where they're distressed all day, but they go to sleep. And then they wake up the next day and go, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> you know, the distress has gone. They haven't remained anxious and aroused during their sleep. Unfortunately, and you don't, this is a temperamental or an inbuilt characteristic, the genetics of this are quite strong. Some people say, well, I just sleep properly. Why don't, why don't you? I go, well, you're very fortunate that you do, but not everyone does. Those who stay aroused during, so distressed during the day, aroused during sleep, of course, wake up distressed. They don't experience that relief that is essential every day to everyday functioning. So that's a really major function of sleep is to break the distress cycle. And you see that in a psychological sense. You see it in arousal mechanisms that are recorded during sleep. People commonly recognize that by the number of times they wake up during sleep and then I'm tossing and turning, but basically waking up tired. They haven't been refreshed. And I think increasingly we're starting to understand the brain mechanisms of repair and regeneration that take place during sleep. So distress messes with all of that. So I think one of the things, of course, people do other stuff then. They drink alcohol more. They do other things. They try and cope in various ways to reduce the distress, end result of which is typically to make actually their uh, distress worse, but more importantly, to disturb their sleep so they don't actually get relief from the distress within that 24-hour period. And that's where distress becomes really risky in terms of suicide. If you never experience a, a reduction, if you don't get a break, it just goes from day to day, then that builds very quickly. And in some people, that reaches a crescendo very quickly. Most of us cannot survive very many days without breaking that cycle of distress. So what, what do you think about what further research needs to be done in this area? Well, a lot more work needs to be done, I think, at, at, in, in both ways. That you know, A lot of work we've done with uh, people with lived experience, uh, particularly young people, in the clinical world, often people aren't really asked about their sleep patterns, their total sleep-wake cycle patterns, to find out what they really do. And, and then they don't really look at whether taking interventions, daytime exercise, morning light exposure, various types of other approaches, what effect in their particular situation that has on their mood, but also on their sleep pattern. So people aren't often encouraged to kind of experiment to find out the best way to manage that. And if managing their sleep-wake cycle pattern better actually translates into better, for example, depression treatment or anxiety treatment in those particular kind of situations. So the lack of information and the lack of uh, doctors and clinicians sharing that information, it becomes really important um, to manage the whole particular kind of phenomena. I think at a public health level as well, there's a lot of issues around uh, increasing awareness about the importance of monitoring physical activity and monitoring, making use, of course, in Australia of daylight light exposure, the timing of activities in addition to the total amount. And that managing your sleep-wake cycle is one of those things that you can do. And if you don't have a very uh, robust cycle, I mean, if you're classically like me, more an evening person than a morning person, right? morning people, can I say I really don't like morning people? I've said this a number of times. We've received a lot of hate mail. Morning people tend to have very regular sleep-wake cycles. So they're up in the morning, bright and chirpy, 
and they, they tend to not be perturbed much. They maintain those cycles. More evening type people are more easily perturbed by what's going on, by disruptions, by worrying about things and staying up and have more unstable cycles. And those more unstable cycles are associated with high rates of depression and particular issues. So if you're one of those people who really needs to use more effort, daytime activity, physical activity, various kinds of things to maintain a regular cycle, but you need to know that about yourself. So I think when we're teaching kind of health literacy, we don't actually teach much about it. Lots of people will run into particular periods because of periods of life, like you know, having children, childbirth, other things that happen, physical, where people need to know that managing their sleep-wake cycle and trying to maintain a regular cycle is very important to maintain their overall health, but particularly their mental health. They'll cope better. The difficulty is people only seek help when things have gone really wrong. And then if people say, I can't sleep, the tendency to say, okay, well, take a sleep medicine or there's a crisis or something. And, you know, it's the first time in their life that they're really aware that if they don't sleep, they can't cope. But then they go for a very short term, you know, benzodiazepine type approach or some other, some sort of hypnotic immediately as the solution without really working out, hang on, what is my own intrinsic sleep cycle actually like? Or if they have other problems, you know, snoring and sleep apnea and other things, other or pain or other things that are interfering with their sleep, that the knock-on effect of that will be on their mood, on their cognition, and put them at considerable risk. So I think there's quite a lot to be done in an education-type way. And I think, of course, this is where the research really matters. And I think what I like what's happening at the moment is the personalization within that, the increasing use of activity things, you know, Fitbit-type things, other sorts of measures, uh, things your phone measures. I hate my phone. It tells me what I haven't done Monday to Friday in terms of activity compared with weekends, you know, but that kind of feedback, personal feedback, and then understanding that, that you can actually take steps within that to manage that more effectively. And if it's, and if it's working or not working and you do need further medical assistance or psychological assistance that you're building the evidence about yourself and what your own cycle is like. And if there are things in your life, you know, work, work commitments, childcare responsibilities, you know, new child, new baby, whatever else. These, these are periods in which you know, sleep's going to be disrupted. Other, other areas, for example, I see quite a lot of middle-aged women passing through menopause whose sleep is disturbed by temperature dysregulation during that particular period and, and other things which have never been really discussed, you know, but having major effects on their lives. A lot of my work is currently with teenagers, you know, and trying to make sure that teenagers, although they have a shift to sleeping later and getting up later, don't become nocturnal, do stay daytime active, do have light exposure and use exercise and sleep wake cycle regulation to regulate their mood. I don't know if they're in toast, but teenagers can be a bit moody and can find themselves. It's a great age to learn the extent to which management of these sorts of activities, uh, sleep wake cycle kind of promotion. I can I say I hate the word sleep hygiene. Oh yeah. It sounds like oh, yeah. staying clean. You know, staying clean. If you only just washed your hands or something, you know. It's got that puritanical (laughs) sort of thing to it about good people are clean around sleep. And it's like, you know, that's why the late night types are seen as slovenly, Ian. You know, didn't you know that? Yes. Well, I think that's why they're unshaven and unwashed and unclean and the morning people are clean and tidy and neat. I say this because some of my best friends are surgeons and they always insist they have these meetings at 6.30 in the morning as morning people. Mind you, they never turn up. They're never there. But the mornings, you know, <laughs> you know, and those of us who've you know barely been able to come to consciousness at that point are sort of you know, well, not very verbal, yeah. unwashed. Yeah. So the sleep, you know, and I think we need to. Therefore, I think we need to change the way we present that. 
away from that kind of simplistic sleep hygiene yep. sort of health information to this much more personally informative type idea. And uh, there's a lot of discussions, you know, in medicine at the moment between sort of personalized medicine or what the geneticists prefer to call precision, precision medicine. I prefer the personalized bit, working out what works for you. You know, it may be that the timing you get up, early morning light exposure, other sets of issues, does physical activity works for you. Certain kinds of, on the other side of the coin, certain kinds of relaxation activities, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, other various things that you need to do to deactivate in the evening in order to go to sleep rather than going to sleep worked up. If you, if you very much ruminate, learning sort of cognitive techniques to control rumination. And I think we've seen a lot of advances in the psychological care for those sleep type uh, sets of issues. So that although sleep's not something you're aware of when you're asleep, it's something you can do quite a lot about, you know, when you're awake. Exactly. And I really like your point about sort of people understanding their sleep type. You know, we, we send all our teenagers to the career counsellor in high school, but why not the sort of understand your individual characteristics to set yourself up for a life of sleeping, sleep to win, you know, sleep with your characteristics, undertake your day t- daytime activities to match your underlying type so that you're not constantly fighting against the tide. Because it seems a good um, time to teach people those skills. I do think we really struggle in public health, if my public health colleagues don't mind me saying so, with individual differences. So we tend to want to have one message. You know, there's one set of messages. You must do this, all of you. You know, don't drink, don't smoke. You know, sex education. It's sort of, it's sort of, we've got to keep the message simple. Well, the message isn't that simple at the individual level because it doesn't work. And trying to get people to, for example, fight against their own chronotype is not always that productive or for or as a group for teenagers to treat teenagers the same as middle-aged adults in terms of what is actually happening to them. So there's phase-appropriate things. Of course, this is true with kids in trying to settle kids into regular cycles. It's not necessarily that easy. You're not necessarily a bad parent if you can't get your kids to sleep that kind of easily and they're not easily settled or don't easily settle into cycles. A lot of that is built in. So... Just coming back to the research area of that, I think a lot of the research through the genetics, through the individual phenotyping, through the interventions needs to pay more respect to this degree of individual difference that exists. And then what is the best match between interventions and types? And I think in the public health sense, learning, particularly in in high school, learning as a teenager, the relationship, the fundamentals of this discussion we're having, the relationship between sleep-wake cycles and mood and anxiety and capacity to cope you know, it's funny how in health we go on and on and on about risk to cardiovascular disease. You know, we're talking to teenagers about risk to cardiovascular disease. Something might happen to you when you're 70, not that relevant. You know, or we go on and on and on about obesity, you know, and it's long-term consequences or weight gain. And we're, yeah, 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 whatever, you know, kind of stuff. We go, no, no, no. What I'm talking about here is, you know, actually your capacity to cope tomorrow, right? And your moodiness and whatever. And in fact, with the younger people, that means a lot, actually, and things like coping with exams or coping with life stresses or particular things. I mean, there are other excellent exam, you know, periods. Uh, women who are having babies, and I must say the dads as well. You know, the disruptions are going to happen around the perinatal period. The ones I remember around menopause. If you do have other physical illness, you know, we don't actually, I think, we miss the opportunity to uh, take that down to a level that becomes meaningful. And if you know certain things about yourself, or even more, if you know that it runs in your family, you know, those particular things. I always have hilarious with families that I'm, attached to hilarious discussions about the shared uh chronotypes etc and various of my 
in-laws, outlaws, they'll be aware of this. I love seeing that, you know, we're always the partners think it's their fault that all these people share these terrible sleep-wake cycles in common. They've caused it. Like, oh, you haven't caused it at all. You're all living with it. They've all got that in common. Yeah. They just unfortunately, as a group, have inherited rather unstable cycles that are easily perturbed and are particularly, you know, of the late night toll. Others who are fortunate to have those more stable morning type patterns and whatever else are less. So uh, as in much of health, understanding your own risk, but taking proactive steps to moderate that risk and finding out what really works for you at certain phases of life. I think in, uh, this has become more important in terms of maintaining daily routines, what a daily routine actually is from a clock point of view or from a sleep wake cycle point of view, assisting from a work or you know, other aspects of one's life. What about those of us that the audience mostly are people working in, in sleep, like clinicians, researchers? Um, what are your thoughts on how best to assess suicide risk or any, how to best support people we're working with? And in, uh, obviously we, we focus on improving their sleep, but a lot of us don't have the discussions around suicide risk and, and what we should be really looking for. Yes, yeah, so I think there has been, uh, if you like, fault on both sides. Many of the clinicians I work with who ask about suicide and depression barely ask about sleep. <laughs> I think on the other side of the fence, there's a lot of people working sleep, and I, very famous people around the world, I had these discussions with, what are those delayed sleep device people? Aren't they all depressed? Oh, yeah, but we don't ask them. You know, what about uh, all those people with insomnia and ruminating? I'm just, aren't they incredibly anxious? Oh, yeah, but we don't, we don't, don't dwell on that. You know, so I think one of the problems is we have sort of super specialization within the areas we are, and we're looking for particular phenotypes, particular characteristics of particular types of disorders that may not have been fully diagnosed before. I mean, the world of health, you know, it's all just insomnia and it's all just messy sleep. And we're looking for, as, as more specialised clinicians often define the specifics, and I think people themselves are often looking for more of the specifics. But we tend to just row down one creek. So we ask a lot about sleep and don't ask about mood or don't ask about anxiety. And then, of course, suicide is, by its nature, a hard topic. And the danger, of course, is if you ask, they might say, yes, when people are like this, they often feel that they can't cope. They often get to the stage, particularly if their sleep's been very poor, that feel life's barely worth living because you can't enjoy anything. Actually, you can't sleep. My favourite topic is, uh, is actually anhedonia, right? Like the absence of hedonism, the absence of pleasure. If you want to make sure that you can't enjoy anything, just lose your circadian system. You know, don't sleep. Most of us had jet lag. Be aware of the fact you can be on the other side of the world and be awake, but enjoying almost nothing. <laughs> you, know, you just feel so out of out of whack, and the lack of enjoyment. So, I, I think the issue is encouraging clinicians, particularly sleep clinicians, to go down that track and see what the particular other characteristics might actually be, and emphasise the link between sleep, mood and not being able to cope and that not being able to cope at times, the distress associated with that may become in fact suicidal behavior. Now it depends how comfortable you are. I mean, everyone I see who's depressed, I just assume they're suicidal. If they say they're not, I assume they're lying to me because you know, most of the people who said they weren't when they recover go, I was, but I just didn't want to tell you, you know? So I think making the assumption that if people are really struggling with their sleep, they're going to have mood or anxiety problems and a proportion of those are going to really feel at their wits end with that. And that's fine. That actually, the recognition of that, it doesn't mean you suddenly have to jump and ring the police or ring an ambulance or send people to hospital or whatever, which is often what people fear, that if you raise the topic, there'll be a sort of catastrophic response to it. As distinct from people live with it in their head and they're terrified of actually acknowledging it uh, in case somebody does something or in case they lose control of themselves. It's distinct from saying, no, 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 no. 
that's really important. That's quite common. So this discussion we're having today is really important to say, actually, it's quite common in those situations. You know, sleep disturbance is a big thing. It's not a trivial thing. You know, I think it's one of those things we easily say, oh, I've had trouble sleeping, you know, as a, as a marker of distress, got happening in my life. Of course, it disturbs your sleep. If that persists, if it's severe, it's then going to be associated with mood disturbance, with loss of capacity to cope. And inevitably, inevitably in that situation is life worth living. So I think uh, in a lot of the suicide crises we see, you see that crescendo of that particular thing where the person has not been able to sleep for a particular period. They've not been able to relieve their distress in the usual kind of ways. And that, that becomes part of the straw that breaks the criminal's back. So um, whether sleep clinicians like it or not, <laughs> you're actually sitting there with a population that underneath actually has quite a high rate of anxiety and depression. And within that, or associated with that, will be a degree of suicidal thoughts and behaviours, often uh, not overtly expressed, but better dealt with by being expressed. And I think here's the point is that with some confidence, interventions around those areas will produce benefits. I think the other thing people worry about in our area is there's nothing that can be done or that treatments don't work or that they're focusing on the particular thing. Or maybe even with the sleep people, maybe I should even discuss it with the sleep people. They're just here to discuss it. I'm always fascinated when people say, I went to the sleep doctor, so I only discuss sleep. I went to the psychiatrist, so I only discuss anxiety and discuss sleep. You know, it's as if the doctor on the other end or the clinician or the psychologist on the end only has one skill or only has one thing. You know, actually, you know, actually, they'll do a better job if they know more of what is happening. Oh, I didn't mention my drug and alcohol problem because that was a sleep doctor. You know, I didn't mention my chronic pain because I was a sleep doctor. <laughs> I didn't mention the depression was a sleep doctor. We are victims of our own specialization, I think, and somewhat of our own narrow sense of inquiry in certain areas. Even comorbidity, I think, is a terrible word. You're seeing a range of phenomena of disturbed function, and they are going to affect sleep-wake cycles, they're going to affect mood, they're going to affect cognition, they're going to affect the person's metabolic function concurrently, their immune function concurrently. So the person's sick, you know, they're sick. <laughs> but which of the interventions could we focus on that might have the biggest effect? And specifically focusing on sleep and sleep-wake cycle interventions may have big effects on all of those other factors. And I think that's where the areas of sleep medicine and the areas of circadian medicine have been underrated in terms of their potential to have multiple good outcomes, not just on the target, if you like, of better sleep. Thanks. That's really helpful for, and helpful for me. So I won't be so frightened to ask in terms of asking about that. And I like your framework of just assuming, okay, they're, they're probably thinking about it. So you may as well put it on the table and, and talk about it. People, I can just say, David, people experience a great deal of relief often when they do that. But the other thing, and they may get distressed. I mean, the most important thing I have in my office is a box of tissues. And I'm going to joke with my PA, the bigger, buffier the bloke who comes in, get a big box of tissues. <laughs> okay, because it might be the first time that they've expressed that distress. A lot of distress expressed to a health professional is very protective against the opposite, which is actually suicidal behavior when people are on their own. So yeah, people might get distressed and often better to assume they're going to get distressed. <laughs> But that's okay. That's what we're kind of there for. And and interestingly, if you look at who people do distress, express that distress to, not a lot of people end up in the hands of a psychiatrist. That's a very small proportion. People do it with their general practitioner, they do it with their hairdresser. Talking with physios recently, physios get told an enormous amount of stuff while they're moving people's joints around. And so I think we just got to take, from a suicide prevention point of view, I'd make this serious point. 
we've got to take the opportunity, whichever set of health professionals people are intersecting with, there's an opportunity there to pick up that and, and really put out the positive message that, that many of these problems can actually be dealt with, even if they're terrifying, even if people are ashamed of them, even if people are afraid of them, we've actually got interventions that will really help. And I think sleep positions and sleep conditions generally can make the point it's highly likely that if their interventions are effective, that people's mood and cognition will improve, that they will not just sleep better, they'll feel better and they'll think better and they'll think straight better. <laughs> Being Picking up your earlier point, they'll experience relief from their distress in a way which then on the following day or the day after, they'll be able to cope. And in suicide prevention, that's really important. It's getting through the next hour to the next day that often matters so that people can then, uh, with their own coping mechanisms, but also the social world around them can respond so tragically in many of the deaths by suicide we have missed the opportunity that would have otherwise been there if it had been expressed and people through their own mechanisms but also through social support had been able to respond Ian, thank you so much for speaking with us today it's been fantastic it's really insightful i think it's a lot of useful information for all our listeners and um yeah thank you thank you very much thanks for the opportunity well, that was fantastic having Ian speaking with us. Um, what were your take-homes from that conversation? Yeah, that it's interesting that if we're looking at the link between sleep and suicide, it could be mediated via a range of different things. They're really, I really like that concept of looking at the whole sleep-wake cycle and the circadian influence. And as we've talked about in other episodes, that circadian influence really pervades all aspects of life. And then how distress mediates that relationship as well. Because if you think of the patients we see, Often there's high distress, which is what escalates them to coming to see specialists like ourselves in this area. And understanding that's a high risk. It was fantastic that he rounded it around. I mean, obviously it is around that just the, the bottom of it all is the coping. Like, you know, if you feel like I can't cope anymore and you could probably cope until you perhaps you know, had a baby or going through menopause or, this, or something, you know, something big changed and then you just thought, wow, I just... My circadian system, plus my mood, plus my relationships, plus the distress is just higher and higher. And I think that uh, obviously, obviously, he's a you know an eminent specialist and um, real big sort of thinker in this area. So it was just yeah, I, I thought it was just we could have talked for a lot longer, couldn't we? We could we could probably have a whole day. Um, teasing it out a bit more. So if you want to hear more of Ian talking about mental health and a range of other issues, check out his podcast called Minding Your Mind, available via all the usual uh, podcast uh, apps and streaming services. Uh, Ian's group have also published a number of key papers in the last 12 months looking at the relationship between mood, depression, circadian rhythms, and we'll put the links to those in the show notes. Moira, so what's your clinical tip? I think the clinical tip is, and Ian touched on this anyway, and I think he expressed it even better, I think is to remind our listeners and clinicians particularly that we probably do need to assume, whether it's expressed or not, that people are experiencing a really quite a deep level of distress and they may not want to even go into how bad they're actually feeling. So I think that we can always, we should always have as part of our assessment is just actually asking how they're going. But sometimes it's less obvious and you're just not quite sure what they mean by that. The clinical tip is definitely pick up on that, but definitely say, can you tell me more about that? Are you saying that you don't want to live? Are you talking about suicide? That really just actually help them to bring it out, something they're finding difficult to express. 
um, and 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 for us to sit with that and not have to. I think it's really important. We don't have to rush off to triple O. This very often, you know, very mostly if it's something you can sit with, it's something they're just expressing, and you can actually still support them without having to feel like you are a mental health specialist. So what's your pick of the month? So I've been reading a book this month that I really like called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And it's about trauma, particularly developmental or early life trauma, and how that changes the way both the body responds and how people respond. And for me, what really resonates is it fits with many people I see in clinical practice who are coming to see me later in life with issues sleeping, high levels of distress, difficulty switching off, but probably began as some early life or developmental trauma that's actually changed the way their brain responds and given it that heightened excitability and difficulty switching off. Oh, that sounds and, Yeah, really interesting. And, the, and the, 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 just the nice connection for me is Bessel actually worked with Alan Hobson in Massachusetts. And Alan Hobson was a psychiatrist. He's recently died, unfortunately, who I really found a wonderful mentor when I was in Boston for a couple of years, learning a lot about his work on dreams and his work on consciousness and how that relates to sleep. And so they'd actually work together. So it was really nice for me, you know, reading some of what Bessel had written about his experiences working with Alan Hobson many years ago when he was sort of early in his work with trauma. Fantastic. Well, put that on my list as well. What about for you, Moira? What's your pick? Well, I've been doing a bit of reading, of course, um, around preparing for this podcast today. And also you'll be aware I've been um, touched by suicide on a personal level recently as well, someone close to me. So um, I've got a just I've just been re- reading, looking at what kind of what sort of researchers are doing stuff around the world is, is specifically looking at sleep and suicide behaviors and that protective role perhaps of sleep and something that I think you know we know that people who are perhaps not sleeping so well, perhaps using drugs and alcohol a bit more to actually disguise or to help with that distress, help to get some sleep, to help to get some relief. And for us to turn our attention to that. So there's just a nice paper that was by Bishop and colleagues. It's been published in 2020 in Sleep Medicine called Sleep, Suicide Behaviours and Protective Role of Medicine. I think we'll put that in the show notes too because I think that's just something that us who are working in the sleep field, I'm I'm sure some of the listeners would be interested in that too. Tell us what's coming up in future episodes, Dave. Well, as you know, we're working up a couple of other episodes at the moment. Uh, One on burnout, which is something, again, we see a lot of in clinical practice, and another on dreaming and lucidity during dreaming and this concept of lucid dreaming. Knowing your interest in some of the social and economic determinants of health, also building an episode looking at sleep and are there social and economic determinants around sleep. So there are a couple of the things we're working on. People should also look out for the Sleep Down Under conference, which has again gone virtual this year, and that's going to be October 11 to 13. Um, check it out, register for the meeting. Um, we've both been involved in putting together parts for the program, and it's going to be a really great meeting and a very stimulating meeting. So make sure you look out for that and register for the meeting. Yeah, it's going to be wonderful. Let's just hope we can meet face-to-face soon, <laughs> 2022. Yeah, he's, he's hoping. So thanks for listening. It's actually really great to be back. Send us any suggestions at podcasts at sleephub.com.au and the email we have. We really love to feature early career researchers particularly and really want to hear about your work if you want to drop us a line. 
And if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes and subscribe via your favourite podcast app. Tell your friends and work colleagues and we'll see you next in your podcast feed. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.